The Day of the Race and the Race from Rowing by R. C. Lehmann. Read for the Coffee Break Collection 27 Sports by Patrick Wallace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Day of the Race on this tremendous day towards which all their efforts for weeks past have been directed the coach will find that all his crew are suffering from that peculiar nervousness to which rowing men have given the name of the needle it is a complaint against which no length of experience can harden a man and the veteran of a hundred races will feel it as acutely as the boy who is engaged in his first struggle a sort of forced cheerfulness pervades the air men make irrelevant remarks about their oars their stretchers or the notorious incapacity of their rivals while they are reading the newspapers or discussing the politics of the day even a coach is seized with the universal affection however gallantly he may strive against it and endeavour to entertain the crew with all his best stories of triumphant victories of defeats averted by brilliant spurts or of the last sayings of some well-known aquatic humorist old oars drop in and for a few moments divert the conversation only to flow back with it into the one absorbing topic that occupies all men's minds the feeling goes on increasing until at last oh joy the time comes for getting into the boat with his faithful oar in his hand and his feet fixed to the stretcher a man regains his confidence and when the word is given he will find that the only effect that the needle has had upon him has been to brace his energies to their highest pitch the duty of a coach on such an occasion is clear he must try to keep his men cheerful and prevent them from brooding over the race that is to come visits from old oars should be encouraged for it is often a relief and an amusement to a youngster to find that some solid oar of the past is even more agitated than he is himself one thing must not be omitted and that is the preliminary spin which should take place about two hours before the race and should consist of two sharp starts of ten strokes each and one hard row of a minute this has an invaluable effect in clearing the wind i have always felt when i have rowed more than one race in a day and i think my experience will be confirmed by most other oarsmen that i have been able to row better harder and with less distress in the second race than in the first an hour and a half before the race a man will be all the better for a biscuit and a hot cup of strong meat soup with perhaps a dash of brandy to flavour it but this must depend upon the hour at which the race is rowed for if you have lunched at one and have to race at half past three you will want nothing between times to stay your stomach the early morning sprint should be taken as usual the race i shall say are you ready once if i receive no answer i shall say go it is the voice of the umpire addressing us from the steam launch in which he will follow the race he must be a man dead to all feeling incapable of sympathy for he actually turns to one of his fellow passengers and makes a jesting remark while our hearts are palpitating and our minds are strung up to face the stern actualities of the race the other crew look very big and strong and fit and determined we shall have to row our hardest and we all know it get the top of your shorts properly tucked in says our captain 
so as not to catch your thumbs. And mind, all of you, eyes in the boat, and when Cox shouts for ten strokes, let her have it. Come forward, all. Touch her gently, bow. It is the Cox who speaks, and his voice sounds thin and far away and dreamlike. One more. That'll do. Easy, bow. Now we're straight. Are you ready? From the umpire. Great heaven, will he never say go, he shouts. There is a swish, a leap, a strain, a rattle of oars, a sense of something moving very swiftly alongside, a turmoil of water, a confused roar from the bank. We are off. We started splendidly. For half a minute I am a mere machine. Thoughts, feelings, energies, all are concentrated into one desire to work my hardest and to keep in time. Then my mind clears, and I become conscious once more of myself and my surroundings. Have we gained? I must steal a look. By Jupiter, they're leaving us. I'm in the boat for, screams the cock. You're late. Being hanged to Cox, he's got eyes like a lynx. Yes, there's no doubt of it. I can see without looking out of the boat, out of the corner of my eye. They're gaining still. Now their stroke is level with me. Now he has disappeared, and for a few strokes I am conscious of a little demon Cox bobbing and screeching alongside of me. Then he too draws away, and their rudder is all I can see. At last that also vanishes, and a sense of desolation descends on us. Nearly two minutes must have gone. I know that by the landmarks we have passed. Surely we ought to spurt. What can Stroke be up to? Is he going to let us be beaten without an effort? Ugh, what a shower-bath that was! It's sick splashing as usual. Well, if we're beaten, we must just grin and bear it. We shall have to congratulate the other ruffians. Hateful! Somebody must get beaten, but we're not beaten yet, hang it all. Three minutes. What's this? Cox is shouting. Now, ten hard strokes together, swing out and use your legs. He counts them out for us at the top of his voice. Grand! We're simply flying. That's something like it. And I'm not a bit done yet. We're none of us done. The boat's going like smoke. Nine, yells the cox. Ten! Now don't slack off, but keep her going. You're gaining, you're gaining. On to it, all of you. He is purple in the face and foaming at the mouth. Glorious! Their rudder comes back to me. I see their cox. We are catching them. Now for it. A few strokes more, and the boats are running dead level, and so they continue for half a minute. Stroke has now, however, taken the measure of his foes. We are steadying down and swinging longer, and I am conscious that the other crew are rowing a faster stroke. It is now our turn to leave them. Foot by foot we creep past them. Their bows come level with me, and then slowly recede. I can see the back of their bowman. His zephyr has come out from his shorts. The back of his neck is very pale. There can't be more than two minutes left now, and I'm still fit, and my wind is all right. We're winning, I'm sure of it. Oh, they're spurting again, and by Jove they're gaining. Spurt, Stroke, spurt, we mustn't get beaten on the post. But Stroke, that wary old warrior, knows what he's about. Unmistakable signs prove to him that this effort is the last desperate rally of his enemies. He sees their boat lurch. Their time is becoming erratic. Two of them are rolling about, in evident distress. His own crew he has well in hand. We are rowing as one man, 
and he feels that he has only to give a sign, and our restrained eagerness will blaze forth and carry us gloriously past the post. Let us wait, he seems to say, a very few seconds more, until the opposing spurt fades out to its inevitable end. So he rows on imperturbably. But isn't he running it too fine? Not he. He gives a quick word to Cox, rattles his hands away, and swings as if he meant to strike his face against the kelson of the boat. Bicker up all, screams the Cox. Now then, comes in a muffled gasp from the captain. We feel that our moment has come, and with a unanimous impulse we take up the spurt and spin the ship along. In a flash we leap ahead, we leave the other crew as if it was standing still. We're a length ahead, now we are clear. Half a length of open water divides us from them. To all intents and purposes the race is over. The crowd grows thicker, the shouts from the bank become a deafening din. Enthusiasts scream futile encouragements to pursuer and pursued. And in another moment the flag is down, the cocks cries, Easy! And with triumph in our hearts we realise that we have won. The captain turns round to us. He is rowing number seven, his face glowing with pleasure. Well rowed indeed, you men, he pants. You all did thundering well. And as for you, Stroke, but words fail him, and all he can do is to clap his delighted stroke on the back. Then, having duly exchanged the customary well-rowed and its accompanying rattle of oars in rollocks with our gallant enemy, we paddle home to the raft, where our exultant coach and our perspiring partisans receive us with handshakings and embraces and fervently epitomised stories of the struggle. "'I knew you had got them all the way,' says the coach. Did you hear me shout when you got to the halfway point? Hear you shout, we reply in a chorus of joyful assent. Of course we did. That's why we spurted. Of course we'd heard nothing, but at this moment we almost think we did hear him plainly, and in any case we are not going to be so churlish as to detract from anybody's joy over our victory. And so the struggle is ended, and we have won. Pleasant though it is to know that training is over, there is not one of us who does not feel a sense of sorrow, as he realises that these days of toil and hardship and self-restraint, of glorious health and vigorous effort, are past. All the little worries under which we chafed, the discipline that at times was irksome, the thirst, the fatigue, the exhaustion, the recurrent disappointments, all these become part of a delightful memory. Never again, it may be, shall these eight men strike the sounding furrows together. The victory that has crowned us with honour has at the same time broken up our companionship of labour and endurance. But its splendid memory and the friendships it knit together, these remain with us and are a part of our lives henceforth wherever we may be. End of The Day of the Race and the Race from Rowing by R. C. Lehmann